Hello, I am a dead person. I died of an overdose in 2010. I'm both everywhere and nowhere, and I've been watching you. I want to tell you what I see. It is said the new medium ushered in the Arab Spring, which compelled some governments to shut down the entire internet due to social media's essential role in the uprisings. Our hazy memories were called the stabilized old guard despotic regimes, young Middle Easterners on Facebook and Twitter, disappointing outcomes. The Arab Spring also catalyzed the rise of ISIS, sparked the Syrian, Libyan, and Yemeni civil wars, leaving 500,000 dead by violence alone, propelled repression in Egypt and elsewhere. Brutal crackdowns, including state torture, under the monarchies. In the decades since, unrest has grown in nearly every country in the world, propelled by the new medium. There's a good reason for it. Unprecedented inequality and unsustainable economic and ecological precarity. The new medium intersects with these crises and incubates the public's response. But in the age of the new medium, it hasn't ended well. The new medium amplifies the most incendiary emotions and voices, incentivizes simplification and categorization. In places where tension between identity groups are high, such as India, Myanmar, and the United States, the new medium acts as digital fuel for violence. 20,000 were murdered and 700,000 displaced in the Rohingya genocide, fueled by hate speech on Facebook. A wave of lynchings in India, fueled by unfounded or falsified accusations of child abduction and abuse on WhatsApp. Similar unfounded accusations of child abduction and abuse are also behind the QAnon phenomenon in the United States. This is made more dangerous by the fact a very real case of abuse is national news. The new medium sees no difference between fact and fantasy. The new medium is an accelerant. The medium accelerates our expectations of change in reality. The medium accelerates our communication, our news cycles, our delivery times, and our revolts. Do the horrific outcomes of mass revolt we've seen across the globe only happen when the poor third world adopts this new medium? Do we think such outcomes won't happen to America? It's happening to America. A collapsing economy, mass unemployment, government corruption, conservative religious fanatics on the side of the demagogue, oppressed minorities, liberal elites, and radicals of all types in irreconcilable opposition to each other. Our new medium revolution looks exactly like those that preceded it. And somewhere else, the billionaires who made the new medium are becoming space people. Space is very different than the place Earth people live. In the vastness of space, the perspective of humanity is whole. The world is big and revolutions are small. Tiny flashes of violence in a very big world. 
Except for Mars. The world is small for Mars. And down on the ground, Earth people only see one tiny fragment of this big, small world at a time. Gazing into their palms, they can access any part of it, but they can never see it all at once. They can't aggregate the big data. They don't have the view from space. The view from space is great. The space people who made the new medium, who look down from high above, don't particularly want a revolution in the United States. They didn't care about the Arab Spring or the Rohingya Muslims or the lynching victims in India. You can't even see those things from space. But in the United States, a revolution or a civil war, it could cause problems for the space people, for their spaceships. The space people now know a bit about revolts that start from the new medium. They have some ideas of what to do. They're already working on alternatives to the police, distributed surveillance, predictive algorithms, facial recognition. They'll give the Earth people what is demanded. It will be called surveillance socialism. Of course, it'll really be surveillance capitalism with a universal and inadequate welfare system. But it will make the country safe to launch their spaceships. It will end the revolution. And the new medium will be even greater. The space people will become gods. They'll look down on the Earth, satisfied with their plan. Are they so hubristic, looking down from space, that they think their plan will really work? The world needs to change. The people have had enough of a corrupt, incompetent, demagogic president. Armed, racist police getting away with murder. In a dreamalized life that feels impossible to live. Deaths of despair in a collapsing empire. People think the world needs to change to become more like the new medium. The new medium doesn't look at the past. There's so many new things to look at. The new medium is all about the moment. You must be right. Do right in the moment. What is right is defined by code. Code written in the moment. And the code is law. There is only one law, and there is no need for the police. On the new medium, we are all police. The new medium is an accelerant. In America, there are only accelerationists. The ones who identify as such are the worst. But everyone is an accelerationist. It's as if we know billions must die before we can save our big, small world. And we decided we don't want to wait around. So we will at least die with meaning. Accelerate our deaths. It's better to kill each other and upload it to the gram. The new medium rewards it. The new medium 
has accelerated this moment. This moment needed to happen. You are with the new medium or against this new moment. The way of this new moment is the right way. You are with the right way or with the wrong way. On Earth, we can only see one way at a time. The only way. In space, though, there are no ways at all. No up, no down. No moments. Only eternity. Fastness. There is, however, darkness. And there is light. But mostly, there's just darkness. Okay, we have a call. We have a, we have a reported, a live reporter in the field. Michelle Luke. Michelle, can you tell us where you are right now and what you're doing? Sure. So I'm at Washington Square Park. I'm at a 24-hour rally that the organizers of Occupy City Hall, a.k.a. Abolition Park, have organized as a response to the NYPD shutdown of their um, encampment last week. So it's super cute. They like started with a press conference. They had a teach-in. Um, they're gonna have like skate demos, and right now they're having a free lunch for everyone. There's gonna be a Vogue ball tonight yeah. <laughs> at Riverside Park, which is iconic. And like some DJs from our scene are playing, which is cute. Um, and then it's supposed to actually end at De Blasio's house. Um, that part is actually secret, but I'm assuming. Oh. De Blasio being the mayor of New York City. Um, can you can you give us, like, for people who haven't been following the New York or even the American narrative, can you catch us up to speed with, like, the last couple weeks or since you arrived in New York? Yeah, for sure. So I arrived when the budget, the NYPD budget had already been passed, which is what the Occupy Blue Hall movement had started as, as a way to defund the NYPD. But the budget had already passed, and a lot of people had actually left the autonomous zone. So the energy was interesting. It was definitely like a bit of a lull. They were waiting for, you know, some kind of revamp to happen. They were planning to bring in porta potties and more permanent structures for all of the houses, people who were living there, and have like a whole bunch of programming. And without any warning, um, basically a week after I'd arrived, the NYPD swooped in at 3.30 in the morning mm. and started flashing everyone's tents, throwing away their property. Damn. Wow. Um, and basically shut down the camp in like a couple hours. So obviously, you know, the protesters say this is the end. They're still planning to organize a, a mobile unit. And I think today's march is very emblematic of how, you know, I think the shutdown galvanized people. Can you tell us who is there? Like, what the like? Who are the protesters in this case? And does it differ from? Sorry, guys, occupy. But what is the? Can you give us a sense of who <laughs> who is who is occupying? Who is in the street? What the what the vibe is? Who's representing? For sure. So there have been a lot of different protests across New York that I've been going to. You know, I've been to like protest yoga sessions, like <laughs> protest vigils, protest marches. And I think the Abolition Park crew in particular um, seemed younger than a lot of other marches. I would say the average age is like 25. What I find really interesting is that both here and at the Chop in Seattle, a lot of these 
kids, and I'm not saying that derogatorily because I, I really love like Gen Z. Um, I think that they have very recently become radicalized. Like right. this is in many cases like their first protest movement that they've been a part of. So I think that's, you know, both good and bad in some cases. Um, but definitely the enthusiasm level is super high. Um, right. I do think, however, that this group, Abolition Park, has been criticized, especially towards the end of the occupation, uh, of not being exceptional enough. A lot of like queer women and black women have come to me saying that they felt like their uh, experiences were not really being fully heard, and that you know there were like allegations of assault and rape at these places, mm. and like not enough transformative justice happening. Mm. Did that happen at Occupy City Hall too? Because I feel like I've heard whispers of that as well. Oh, like Occupy Wall Street? Yeah, I mean there, that definitely happened. Especially you know the first the first couple weeks were utopic as it usually goes, and then um, over time it's inevitable, and then suspicions grow and factions develop and yes yes definitely i think it's inevitable i mean are is there older leadership involved or more experienced uh, organization involved or is does it seem like it's young people kind of like studying up and like going for it yeah yeah i would say that it's mostly young people at this point i think at the beginning of Occupy city hall there was a very legacy activist group called Folk New York that organized it, but they left. Um, mm. So the people who are still here, I think, are definitely on the younger side. The organizer of today's march, I spoke to her right before this call, and she said to me that she basically met everyone through coming to space and that this was her first, you know, rally that she organized. People were referring to Occupy City Hall as Abolitionist Park, or that's something separate? No, it is It, it is called Abolition Park, which I think is very interesting, right? Because another commonality I've noticed between these autonomous zones that I've gone to is that there's always this sort of, like, semiotic battle over the naming of it um, in the beginning and it usually changes names like the Chaz became the Chop and like that was a whole discussion and I think that they chose to go from Occupy City Hall to Abolition Park because their tactics changed once Vocal left and it became more about police abolition rather than reform. Got it. Yeah, that was my question is if police abolition is like the goal, like the demand. Yeah, I mean, they have three demands right now that they listed today. Um, I think the first one was to return their stolen resources. Number two was to drop all charges against protesters. And number three was to provide safe housing to the houseless people that were at the camp. Apparently there were like passports and green cards and money. You know, they had a lot of booths set up providing resources to people. All of that was confiscated, which also happened at the top in Seattle. It was the exact same situation of protesters being like, wait, all of our shit is gone forever. It's like there's no way to reclaim them. And, you know, also fighting for the houseless people's properties because, you know, obviously that, that property meant more to them than the protesters who were saying, you know, property is disposable, we can, we can get it back. But we're doing this for the house too. So if I understand right, though, this the, the demands of this protest that you're currently at are just directly related to this dismantling of the city hall autonomous zone. Yes, it's 
the same crew that's been organizing and piles up there. Protest. But I mean, of course, it's it's like representative of something else, right? That's like their sort of probable cause. If you want to like flip the discourse, it's like that's what's giving them this like concrete thing. But of course, it's it's about like what's a way that we can continue a presence in the street. I'm, of course, I'm now speaking for them. Would you say that's correct or no? No, I think you're right. Yeah, absolutely. This is the first time that they've really like shown up on mass for you know, a protest since the shutdown. There was one protest at City Hall like two days after the shutdown that was organized by various other groups in addition to this group. Um, like, you know, the anti-fascist groups were also part of that. And that protest was gnarly because police set up an insane barricade with like hundreds of pop cars, like far outnumbering the protesters. And that to me was just you know, a display of strength to say you're not going to retake this zone. <laughs> and everyone thinks, like everyone that I've talked to thinks that the autonomous zone got shut down as a show so that, you know, federal troops won't be sent into New York because these autonomous zones are seen as like such volatile fuck news. <laughs> oh wait, that's interesting. Say that again. So you said that this the autonomous zone got shut down so that Trump or whoever didn't have this excuse to send National Guard into New York. Is that correct? Did I hear that right? Right, exactly. That's what a lot of the protesters think have been saying, yeah. Interesting. So there's almost like an understanding there of like the re- there's a sort of sympathy or something for like why it had to shift from an occupation to a different a different formulation of a street protest. Mm. Or no, not necessarily. I wouldn't say there's a sympathy, but it's... Maybe wrong. There's an understanding. They're pilled on the fact that that's what's happening. Right. I mean, I do wonder, like, from a protester's standpoint, does it matter if it's Homeland Security or the police? Right. No. I mean, maybe it does. I imagine it's scarier somehow if it's not the police, but I don't know. I think politically, de Blasio doesn't want it on his hands. Right. So it's a game and they're in the middle. Right. I don't think they have sympathy about the shutdown to prevent the federal agents. I mean, generally, protesters want to escalate. Right. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Where else is the, like, in what other forms is the protest existing? Are you seeing it? I don't know if, like, any semblance of a club or rave or something is existing. Um, Is it online? Where else are you feeling the energy of the protest beyond the street march? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned raving because that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. You know, I think New York nightlife has been so strong for the past five, ten years. And I expected coming to New York to see a lot of the rave communities mobilizing with the protesters. But to be honest, I haven't really seen much of that at all. And it's been kind of confusing and like, honestly a bit dispiriting to me to see that there hasn't been much integration between the New York nightlife community and the protesters here, especially when I see, like, for example, the road community coming together and throwing a protest ball today at the march. There was a rave two weekends ago that billed itself as a temporary autonomous zone, which Mm -hmm. is interesting. Um, because raves are, I think, inherently autonomous zones. And they called themselves a protest rave, but didn't really have many protest elements as part of it. Um, and videos started to circulate of people like being really messy and partying without masks on. Mm. And it caused a huge backlash. Like techno Twitter went crazy. <laughs> um, basically, like canceled all the, all the organizers 
And a lot of people were saying, like, this is not the time to be raving. This is, like, not the time to be partying because of the virus mm. and health concerns. Which I think, you know, that is valid, of course. Like, not everyone can be in the street. But there's no functional difference between being at a protest versus being at a rave, right? In terms of, like, as long as you mask up and you're outdoors, the same level of risk, I think. So to me, like, it's confusing that rave as political resistance is, like, not a greater part of this narrative happening in New York right now. Mm. I wonder, you've written about this a bit, and it's super interesting in your newsletter um, about the politics of rave in the street protest. Can you apprise some of the thoughts that you've already written about on how the protest kind of contains the rave and whether it's okay to experience this kind of pleasure in a street protest over something that's very grave? Yeah, for sure. So I first started thinking about this when I was in L.A., which is where I'm based. And there were big protests happening in Hollywood that like rappers were filming music videos at. And a lot of, again, like young kids who just graduated were coming onto the streets and partying. And there was a huge backlash against that kind of partying as well, where people were going around saying this is not Coachella. Um, You should not be like partying. You should not be drinking. And so I started thinking about, like, what is the place of pleasure here? And that kind of brought me to the shop in Seattle, where a lot of people have been partying and treating it like, you know, the de facto nightlife spot. And that had been causing a lot of controversy as well. I think a lot of organizers were actually going through the state telling people not to drink and to be sober. And, you know, kind of actively discouraging, like, music and partying. Because I think that space was very volatile. There were a lot of people who were fully armed um, and there were fights breaking out every night. There was really hard drug use. You know, a lot of like tweakers basically like had like like, taken over one entire side of the the, the top. Um, (laughs) Such a nightmare. I'm sorry. but (laughs) I know. And like knife fights and all that kind of shit. Like every single night. It was getting pretty gnarly. And so they were actively encouraging sobriety in these spaces. But then I come to New York and I was wondering the same thing. Like, how does the rave kind of fit into this moment? And to my surprise, I think a lot of the protesters, when they heard that I was a raver, were like, oh, my God, please, like, bring DJs to our protest. Please throw a rave at the Autonomous Zone. We would love to have your community in our space. We would love to have a moment to sort of, like, have catharsis and joy and celebration because we've been through a lot of trauma and I was like yes this is what it's about right like this is rave at its more most pure essence I guess as a form of political resistance but also as a way to heal and I think that at this moment in New York in in the New York protest a lot of people are really tired and it's really hot and they've been through a lot of trauma and to them like it's interesting to me that the protesters get it immediately like yes like we want to dance this is like a way for us to come together and celebrate Mm. meanwhile the ravers are like we can't do it Uh. (laughs) what (laughs) generally though i mean what is the mood like do people seem hopeful positive do people seem nihilistic is there death drive kind of at work like just destructive sort of vibe or do you actually feel like there's a utopian streak already i don't know if i can generalize one particular vibe because there's so much happening all the time that it's always hard for me to like insert one narrative to it you Mm, know i think for sure there's a lot of optimism 
and hope. But right now, I would say that there is also a lot of exhaustion, um, some disillusionment. Obviously, the fact that the autonomous zone is gone is, is a big deal. Mm-hmm. These people don't have a place to get together every day in their community. The community has been sort of dispersed a little bit. But, you know, I was talking to a friend about this yesterday as well, who kind of extricated herself from the autonomous zone because they felt like it wasn't, you know, being intersectional and that um, as a queer person, they weren't really being listened to. And they were saying, though, that that hopelessness is a powerful drive as well. And that, you know, this idea that we have to be so optimistic. (laughs) I mean, they thought that was a very boomer attitude. Doomer or boomer? Doomer? Boomer. 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 Boomer? boomer? <laughs> wait, wait, now you're confusing boomer, me. Doomer, doomer? Boomer, boomer, doomer. But I think boomer, like parents. A boomer, yeah. Uh, yeah. to be optimistic. Yes. Is boomer. Uh-huh. So oh, yeah. what is, what's the end goal then? Just kind of yeah, and make I also a community wonder, where there isn't one, where there isn't, I mean. Well, I also wonder what the, I mean, how there is like actually real life ground level reconciliation between things like assaults and rapes happening simultaneously or with a demand to abolish the police. Yeah, that's, like, I have the same question. I think that's a huge part of what needs to be discussed. You know, when we get rid of cops, how do we build our own accountability systems? And I think that's a really relevant question to nightlife as well. Yeah. Because we've seen how many abusers and accusations have come out since the Me Too movement. And I don't think that nightlife is really like, built systems, the proper systems of accountability for that at all. Also, obviously, harm reduction in drugs is a huge part of the question that we need to figure out. I think drug use in L- sorry, in, in New York has gotten really intense. A lot of my friends have told me that they're really concerned about how people who previously didn't really dabble in, like, you know, drugs like meth or, like, using IV needles to shoot up ketamine. Like, this is all new, and it's sort of being glamorized, according to them. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about banning substances. Like, before before lockdown, like, GHB was being banned from all these rape spaces mm-hmm. instead of a harm reduction tactic, right? Ultimately, I feel like a lot of the, subs, uh, a lot of the subjects and focuses of the protests on the surface are actually kind of proxies for something way more macro and way deeper of just unsurvivability, unsustainability, adrenalized life, unsustainability of lower class people in the United States and just that precarity coming to a boil. And I wonder if you think that, I mean, yeah, if there is an end even in sight or a time where people would actually say, okay, now it's time to come to the table and actually talk or discuss. Well, I actually think that autonomous zones are fascinating to me because they do serve as microcosms of these bigger problems that you said. Um, And they're a place to actually live through them and experience them physically, you know, instead of talking about them theoretically, like you actually get to see these issues play out in a really visceral way. So even if there isn't necessarily like a high level of theoretical discussion being had right now, although those discussions do happen in these spaces for sure, and I think autonomous zones are really important because they actually radicalize a lot of people who come into these spaces. 
But yes, I think that you kind of see on a smaller scale, like what kinds of problems are going to arise if you abolish police. And one thing that I find very fascinating to think and talk about is the houselessness issue, because um, both Chaz and the New York Autonomous Zones kind of quickly became homeless encampments, right? Mm. And that became a way for the city to delegitimize them to say, you know, this isn't a protest, this mm. is a homeless encampment. And that separation of the two only really happens by the authorities and the media. The protesters don't see them as separate issues at all. Right. Um, because obviously they think that like class and race inequality are linked and that houseless people sort of embody the most marginalized class where these two issues intersect. Right. So um, it's very interesting to me that in Philadelphia, there is another economy yeah. that I'm going to go to next week that has been positioned as a homeless encampment, but also a protest. Mm. And it's the one that's lasted the longest. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Philly is already basically I mean, that's the dope capital of the the country. I mean, at this point, like there's already been just encampments of homeless heroin users like that. They well, functional cannot, networks. I mean, they, when you yeah, have... exactly, that they cannot uh, really dismantle. So, I mean, it's good that there's political attention brought to it, I I, I would say. Um, like, what does it mean that once you get rid of police, homeless people just flock to your space? It's like, oh, I guess that's what we police were doing, you know? We have police to get rid of homeless people. Well, it, right. reveals what the, yeah, it reveals the core of the of really what this is about, is that human lives can be discarded and be deemed worthless in the current system. So, I mean, that it makes sense. It reveals what it's ultimately really about, right? And in New York, it's interesting because, of course, they, like, cleared so many houseless or homeless people from the city um, under Giuliani. I think they just moved them outside of the city limits. So for a long time, I guess, after the 90s, the streets, like, there wasn't, you know, the, the police did a very good job of making sure that like that was never a part of the psychology of the city in the 2000s. It was like almost part of their branding. Um, so to have them as part of this encampment is I think a particularly poignant statement in a New York occupation. Absolutely. And with eviction moratoriums ending and unemployment ending, a lot of people are gonna find themselves I think houseless and I think this issue is gonna become a lot more relevant. Yeah, right. That's for sure. Yeah. Is there any talk of like a mass occupation, like, you know, much, much larger that's that's not just I mean, it, not just around police abolition, but that maybe is more focused around the rent issue in New York, say? I have not been following as much the rent strike thing. I just know that a lot of my friends aren't paying rent right now. Mm. Sir. Mm. And um, the only other talk of another autonomous zone or occupation coming up that I've heard of is this Saturday. There's supposed to be another autonomous zone popping up with all black leadership in bedside. Oh, cool. Is that, I'm sorry. Is there, this is going to be pedantic, but is there a technical time when like a protest becomes an autonomous zone? Is there a distinction? It's, it's whether it's static or not. Right. I think whether it's, it's an occupation. durational, but like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just wonder. One evening yeah. could end up being an autonomous zone. I mean, I think <laughs> it's what like. I was wondering if there is some kind of durational limit or something. As okay. Joshua Clover says, whoever's in the streets, I think gets to decide, right. you know, outsiders can either acknowledge Agree that or not. Or not. Right. I, I wonder how relevant, if at all, is the sort of 60s civil rights era ideas of 
rainbow coalitions, nonviolent protests, expanding the network of solidarity, expanding the issues instead of narrowing it. Do these kind of ideas from the 60s actually come into play or is there a very different idea and set of rules here? Yeah, I do see some connections, but I think actually a lot of protesters want to distinguish themselves from the 60s. Mm, Um, And the emphasis on sobriety, I think, is one marker. You know, we we are at a really different moment of history. And I guess going back to your question about hopefulness, looking at drugs as a way to like fight the system is no longer realistic in a lot of people's eyes because of what we saw with all of the insane things that happened back and everything in the 90s. People don't see taking a bunch of drugs and acid or whatever and tripping out for a few days as revolutionary. That's interesting. Fair enough. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's a really interesting <laughs> distinction. Yeah, totally true. Yeah. What about electoral politics? Like, are, are people going to vote for Biden somehow, despite being in an autonomous zone? I just wonder, like... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of discussion about that. There's no there's no cohesive, like, decision on what the best tactic. Some people are like, you know, we have to get Trump pent out now. Some people are like, I'm not going to vote for either because I have to pedophile. Like, I mean, you know, autonomous Wait, zones like are also Q, breeding grounds like for Q, conspiracy theories. QAnon? Are there QAnon people involved? Dude, there, there's all kinds of crazy conspiracy yeah. theories floating around these spaces. Really? Like, it is insane. Oh, like yeah. what like yeah, what kind of conspiracies yeah what like in the protest space that's surprising what like what what's going on well because a lot of them don't trust the media and don't don't necessarily read and follow all of the news although i don't want to paint them as ignorant because a lot of people here are very very educated as well but you know there is like i think legitimate fears of police inciting violence um right. through sending in you know agitators into these spaces start fires or to pull out knives um, at the shop in Seattle. What was really weird to me is that before both shootings, the, the lights, like the stadium lights that lit up the whole space were turned off both times and that oh. there were fireworks going off at the perimeter while the shootings were happening as well at both shootings. And it was very disorienting having, wow. having actually been at the second shooting, like you couldn't see anything, and there were fireworks going off, but you couldn't tell of where the gunshots were coming from. Like, it did feel, honestly, it did feel a little bit sketchy, you know? Definitely. That's sus. What are, are there any, uh, <laughs> it, does it seem to be factional? Are factions consolidating, or is there sort of a tolerance or or wider solidarity building? Is there a factional competition for power? Yeah, there definitely is. And that's one of the dispiriting parts of it to me, I guess. Uh, Chop, gradually, there was just so many different groups fighting for power and disagreeing about how things should be run, including, you know, Antifa security, like getting frustrated with the lack of coordination and blah, blah, blah. So everyone just started pulling out one by one and just people just get fed up with all the infighting and just leave. See, this is why it needs to happen on the sea so everyone can just <laughs> vote with their boat. 
Float, float away when you have a problem with the naming rights of whatever island you're on. Long live seasteading. Yeah, I think there's the real solution here. The problem is the land. Um, but I am curious, I know, sorry, during Occupy, that the, the optics of the different sites that were being occupied were really important. And I wonder, especially at a time when no one can be in the universities because of COVID restrictions, I wonder if there's any strategizing about like the optics of the spaces where occupations or meetups or whatever are happening. How much is like the meet, I'm sort of asking two questions. One, are the universities being utilized? And two, is there strategizing about about like the media politics, like what the backdrop is, like where, where they can stop circulation flows? Yeah, I definitely think that media and optics are being thought about very strategically. Um, I think they understand that a lot of activism is happening online as well. But, you know, the, optics are a weird thing. Like on one hand, I think they want their message and their like protest signs and everything like today, like the protest signs are really, really beautiful. You can tell that they put a lot of work into them. But at the same time, like people want their anonymity and they right. want their protests. I mean, they, they want their faces not to be included in the photos. So as a journalist, like navigating that sort of like tricky line between broadcasting their message, but also being careful to keep everyone anonymous and not take like photos of people's faces or to blur them out when you're doing videos. Like that's a new, I think, problem or question that journalists covering these protests have to have to struggle with. Yeah. Um, because there definitely have been like videos that have been taken at protests that have been used to arrest people. Right. So it's not just like paranoid thinking. Right? There is a very good reason why the protesters have adverse feelings but I think that there's like an interesting sort of hierarchy of media toxicity that they see like live streaming for some reason seems to be okay mm. um, but taking still photos can be kind of touchy and the big news cameras can cause a lot of drama once mm. they once they enter this space like everyone becomes like super heightened and I think on one hand like some people, like gravitate towards them and other people are just like, fuck that and start like screaming at them to get out. Interesting. I mean, of course, yeah, that's more about this idea, idea of what the news camera represents than its ability to actually dock somebody. That's super, that is really interesting. Like, yeah, and I saw both Fox News and MSNBC getting like basically harassed and like beaten, not beaten, but like beaten out of space as a child. Right. <laughs> That's more like a fight against what those institutions represent, of course, than like, oh, my face is going to be on national TV because like the more reliable footage is going to be like something shot on an iPhone by somebody in the protest than the news camera that's like shooting from remove. But yeah, the media politics yeah. are, are interesting. And there's also this, this weird thing that like as a reporter, you know, choosing to elevate someone and make them like a leader by interviewing them you kind of do give them power. So right. that's like a weird thing to kind of struggle with in a movement that's supposed to be decentralized, you know, by actively participating and reporting on it, you can also kind of change the power dynamics of these turf wars. True. Yeah, true. Active force. Um, well, this is really interesting. I don't want to keep you on the phone too long, so I'm sure that battery should be used for other things too. I guess I have one more quick question, which is just to clarify an earlier one. Do you see the protesters incorporating any lessons from the past in their strategy or agenda or demands? 
I mean, I wish that there were more communication actually between the different autonomous zones because I think they could really learn a lot from each other. There are striking similarities between all of these cases, both like in the reasons why they come up and why they come down. Part of it, though, is just activating the people who are, say, like bringing the next generation into the politics of street protest. It's not like you're winning a war. It's like just being in an occupation is the value itself. It just needs to exist. Right. So I think the important thing to pass along is just doing it is winning. Well, you got Michelle has a cha-cha slide going on right now in the background. (laughs) So we're going to let you... We're going to let you cha-cha slide to that wonderful little uh, 808 congas. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle's got a really great newsletter. Um, Michelle, do you want to say really quickly how people can follow more what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. My newsletter is, um, it's my name, Michelle, L-H-O-O-Q dot substack.com. And I'm going to be spending the rest of the summer chasing as many as possible. And the zone as I can. So I'd love for people to subscribe. All right. Amazing. We'll put links in this episode to that. Cha cha um, real smooth. Yeah. Thanks for doing the good work, Michelle. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Talk, Talk to you later. later. Bye. Slide to the left. Slide to the left. Cha cha real smooth. Let's go to work. This has been an excerpt of New Models Topsoil, episode 41. For more new models, including all of our podcast content and access to our legendary Discord community, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. Michelle Luke's writing and reporting can be found on her Rave New World mailing list at Michelle Luke, that's L-H-O-O-Q dot substack dot com. See you next episode. <laughs>